What is up, my favorite person? It's your boy, Vanilla Crunch, aka Rabbi Candlers, aka Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I am talking with the founder and CEO of Deep Sentinel, David Selinger, aka Dave, aka Selly. He is one of these rare people who love and believe in what they do so much, it's just amazing and energizing to hear him talk. For real, I can talk to this guy for hours, but we edited it down just to the best takeaways for you. I found myself super excited about him and his company and cannot wait to share it with you. And not to mention, let me just give you some background on how impressive Dave is. He was one of the early people at Amazon that built their ad buying technology and their first AI systems, working directly for Bezos. He then started Redfin, the huge real estate site, as a side hustle. In the first year, he was working from 8 p.m. to 4 a.m. while he was still at Amazon. And by the way, Bezos funded his current company. Yeah, this guy's good. So I've been on a home security kick and bought Deep Sentinel for my own house. They have 24-7 guards that monitor your home and defend it for you. And I reached out to Sally to talk about this and a whole lot more. If you ever wanted to get inside the head of a serial entrepreneur who is tackling some of the world's biggest challenges, this episode is for you. In this conversation, you're going to learn three major things. Number one, thinking through problem selection and how it's the number one thing you can do as an entrepreneur. I really love that one. Number two, working with Jeff Bezos and some of his specific feedback on projects. And number three, Deep Sentinel's marketing funnel. You'll have to listen to the episode to find out what it is. Enjoy those three things, plus a bunch more ear nuggets along the way. Before we jump into the conversation, are you new to my podcast or email list? Holler at me on Twitter or Instagram at Noah Kagan. I love hearing from you. I want to know why you're here and how I can help you the most. As well, the homies at Deep Sentinel generously hooked us up with a discount. Use code OKDORK and you will get a discount on DeepSentinel.com home security. And this is not an affiliate. I don't get any kickback. I just love these dudes in this product. Go check it out yourself. DeepSentinel.com code OKDORK for a hookup. And also a special pre-show shout out listener to Stas Reda of Mother Country Russia. He left a review saying, one of my favorite business podcasts, Vodka. Yeah, thanks, man. Appreciate it. And if you want to shout out in a future episode, leave an iTunes review. I check every single one of them. Dude, do people tell you you look like Howie Mandel? Yes, all the time. God, it's a good look too, man. Yeah, I get Howie Mandel literally probably once a month or something. Someone will like stop me on the street and be like, no, because Howie Mandel's short too. He's like five foot six, five foot seven. I dressed up as Howie Mandel for Halloween just because I didn't have a costume this year. It was easy. You didn't have to really even do anything, did you? I just told people I was Howie Mandel and they're like, oh my God. I've had a theory that bald men are ruling the world from now on. I'm working on it. I have a good picture of me and Bezos from 10 years ago where we both have a little bit of hair and we look kind of ridiculous. Or actually, I had a lot of hair. He had a little bit of hair. And then now we're both just like straight up bald next to each other. Hans, are you hanging out with Bezos? He's an investor in the company. So I meet with him from time to time. Go on. That's it. I mean, he's a good advisor, right? I mean, obviously, one of the best kind of most aggressive businessmen in the world, right? Okay. Dude, that's great. I mean, you, you're so, you're no, nonchalant. Yeah, you know, me and the B, we're hanging out. No, no, no I, thought you, I thought you knew that. I'm sorry. Like, it's on our, you know, advisor list and stuff like that. So, obviously, I don't talk to him every day. But, uh, you know, I mean, he's obviously got his shit together. He's a really unique entrepreneur, too, right? I mean, I, I kind of put him in Elon Musk. And if you look at, like, all the entrepreneurs that are out there right now, he and Elon Musk are pretty unique in that everyone else kind of swam, I mean, maybe found a trend and then kind of swam with it. And, and it's nothing worse about them as entrepreneurs. It's still really hard to run Facebook, right? Like that's a hard job, but that's a trend that kind of everybody, you know, swelled behind and supported as it grew. Amazon and Elon tend to do shit that people hate and they're just hating on them the whole way through every single day. You know, when I was at Amazon, I remember Tom Skutak used to come to our team all hands. Like when there's even a group of like 20 people or more, the CFO would show up and be like, this is why Amazon's not getting out of business. 
literally every week in the Wall Street Journal, the cover would be like, is it this week that Amazon's going to go out of business? Is it next week? And, you know, I mean, Elon Musk kind of has the same thing until this quarter, for example, with Tesla. Oh, turns out we're cash flow positive and we're going to be cash flow positive for the foreseeable future. Dun, da, 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 you know, and the same thing happened in Q4 of 2009 for Amazon. Nobody believed in Amazon. And then Q4 2009, they said, all right, every other retailer is going to mark a negative comp. They're going to go down year over year and they're going to be not profitable. Just for shits and giggles, we're going to take our growth rate from, I think it was like 18% down to like 15%, and we're going to prove to you we can be profitable. So we're going to grow when everyone else is shrinking, and we're going to be profitable when no one else is profitable. Bam, did it, and then now everyone believes in Amazon. That's all it took, you know? But for the 15 years before that, there was not a single person that was like, yeah, Amazon's going to rule the world in all these different ways, you know? And I, I think those are unique entrepreneurs. Were they seeing stats or data that showed otherwise? Was it conviction? I, mean, I know you worked at Amazon before. What is it that, that they were seeing that others weren't? The line is only visible in retrospect, in my, in my opinion. Maybe, maybe it is, right? Like there's some pattern about these people that are like truly amazing that are able to see things. Certainly it's an aspect of conviction. But if you take all these ingredients and you add them up, right? It's vision, conviction, and intellect, right? Take those ingredients and then put them into the bodies of, of 100,000 people. And you still end up with like 99,997 crazy people and three geniuses. And so I don't think you can kind of, you know, in some sort of like forward looking predictive way, say this person's not crazy, right? Like you worked with Sean Parker, right? And you know, take those ingredients, right? Everyone thought he was crazy. And, and by the way, he's crazy, right? And I, I know Sean very well and, and was very close with him through that whole period too. And the line between genius and crazy is not, I don't think, seeable in this kind of environment, except for really in retrospect. Two things that I'm wondering is that sometimes I've thought that about Amazon versus like AppSumo, our business, right? We're like a mini Amazon of software. And I have thought is Bezos and Musk and, and maybe yourself as well, Dave, do you think that they've just had bigger visions than everyone else? Because sometimes I'm like, they're just thinking a lot bigger. And then, you know, I've had this other thought where if Bezos was running our company, how would he run it? I don't know if it's bigger or just that they happen to be more right or that they've picked problems that are big enough, right? If you read some of Sean's most recent interviews, and he doesn't do a lot of them anymore, right? As you probably know, the most recent kind of in-depth interview that I've read from him was done by Fortune, and it was almost like six or seven years ago. And he said, you know, after a long time, what he realized was applying the craziness, the intellect, the drive, and the vision to problem selection. Pick the biggest possible problems you can have and those problems are the ones that people are already kind of working on using everything but crazy, and they're not getting through. That means that it takes crazy to take those really big problems and break them. And, you know, I appreciate you potentially putting me in that group. I like to think of myself there, but I, you know, I don't really think that I am, honestly. I, I try to aspire to the same types of questions, though, right? Like, am I solving the biggest possible problem that I can touch in my life right now? And problem selection, right? So if you look at the issues where Sean has dedicated his life kind of going forward, it's been into cancer research, which like, yes, thank you, Sean, for putting money behind some of the most crazy and outspoken researchers in cancer research. If you look at Bezos, his kind of general view, at least the public side, and I can't share anything about our conversations, is that a lack of growth in the economy could create societal collapse. And that there's a longstanding set of historical analyses, the kind of frontierism of America, and that the concept that there's something new on the other side of the horizon is what drives this kind of Western culture of let's go through whatever it is we're going through today because tomorrow will be better. And that growth is what holds this kind of consumer-esque society together. And then if you take Gates, he says it's got to be this kind of transfer of wealth and dedication to big issues. Tom Steyer says it's climate change. 
you know what's interesting with people get rich and then they can do crazy stuff, it seems like. You don't have as much downside now that you're covered financially and then you could do these kind of crazier things without it. You know, I've tried to do stuff before getting super ultra rich. Obviously, I'm, I'm doing fine and, and I'm very, very blessed in my life. But I do have to kind of agree with some of that, that there is this, I don't know if you'd call it like safety net of the ability to try things that other people wouldn't try and to really push those limits, especially again in those big problems. Because when you have to do something on a day-to-day basis, you're always thinking about that. The challenge that I think that we're seeing politically, if you want to go into that, is that do people that get there actually then dedicate their wealth and time and energy to doing that? And on average, the answer, unfortunately, is not yes. Well, I want to come back on, on some of these things, I guess, because you know you were early at Amazon, and then you created Rich Relevance, and now you're doing a security company. And Redfin. Did you help start Redfin? Yeah, I was one of the co-founders of Redfin. I love, Redfin's my favorite. Thank like, you. I go to Zillow, and like I'm like clicking on shit. I don't know what's happening. And then there's like Realtor.com is spammy. Redfin is, yep. is solid. Yeah. It's meant to be the consumer-focused version of it. And you, as a UX-type person, right? Like, I think you'll love this, too. When we wrote our first investment deck, it was like, this is all about the user experience. We're going to create a business that is about creating the best user experience. And that includes transparency of data. That includes we built the first interactive maps anyone had ever seen, right? Before that was MapQuest, the click and wait 20 seconds for a new map to load. And the user experience would become the center of a real business. And it's a business I'm very proud to have uh, helped start. How did you pick the problems, right? Like, so you picked going to Amazon, you picked Rich Relevance, and then you picked Redfin, and then now you picked Deep Central. Maybe can you walk through for the audience who maybe doesn't know you and, and you could share a little bit more about that? Because I think a lot of people are like, what do I work on? And I have a side hustle thing. And I, you know. I'll be honest, right? Like, I don't think I was nearly as prophetic and thoughtful about it as Sean talks about and, and Sean Parker talks about is problem selection is the number one most important thing you can do as an entrepreneur or as an innovator. And I've come over the last 25 years to really agree with that because I stumbled into my problems, right? I stumbled into Amazon. I had started another e-commerce company and I was making enough money to get by and actually a lot more money than I needed to get by. And so I was bored. And I just happened to go to Amazon interviews and I talked to them about like, hey, I found this thing called Google AdWords. What I'm doing is I'm advertising for these niche products. It's 2001. So I'm not competing against anyone because everyone's pulling back spend because the economy has completely collapsed. So I'm paying like 50 cents a click for really high-end things like coffee makers and niche products that millionaires all over the Midwest buy. My conversion rate is 50%, and I'm making between $100 and $300 a margin every time I do that. And I'm like, so I don't really need a job at Amazon because I'm just crushing it. We ship these things out, and we just make money. And I'm interviewing with this guy named Neil Roseman, who is a VP of consumer. And I lean back in my chair, and he leans forward, and he goes, I want you to go back to those economics one more time. So you pay 50 cents a click, you pay a dollar for a conversion, and you make 100 to $200 time after time after time after time. And I was like, yeah, it was sweet. That turned into Urabamba, which turned into the first $100 million customer of Google AdWords. And because of that, that drive, that willingness for Bezos and this culture that he created at Amazon to take a stupid interview with a stupid 25-year-old kid who was way more cocky than he was smart and turned it into $100 million of spend in six months, that's a pretty amazing culture. And I just stumbled into it. There was no kind of thinking about it. I just, I just loved it. Why did you go interview at Amazon instead of scaling that out yourself? I was lazy. It's probably the honest first thing. Like, I was making enough money working two hours a week that like, eh, and I probably should have, right? Like if you take a look back, right, that would have been an amazing decision for me to make. And that's what I mean. Like I just kind of stumbled through my career. But that said, though, I ended up at Amazon. I ended up getting to work directly with Jeff Bezos for you know two years of my life. And I ended up 
having, I think, a pretty dramatic impact on Amazon's course. I helped to build the first AI and data-driven team, which was his entire thesis coming from D.E. Shaw. I helped build the foundation of what became Amazon Advertising, which is this now like five or six billion dollar profit business unit within Amazon and funded the entire price war with Walmart for the next five years. You know, it was a fantastic journey, right? While I was at Amazon, I met all these amazing people and ended up starting Redfin as my side hustle, right? No way. Yeah, yeah. I started Redfin over the course of like, I want to say it was almost a year. I'd come home from Amazon at like eight o'clock at night and I'd work till four o'clock in the morning on Redfin and then just get up and go back to work. And we built this great team of people from Microsoft and Real Networks and Amazon. And we did it in the evenings. And over the course of a year, we built this incredible experience. We launched in sometime in like 2004, I think. And like the day we launched, we were the cover of the Seattle Times, the cover of Imran Real Estate. We launched and we had 400,000 visitors on our first day. This is 2004, right? So like 400,000 is a crazy number. So our ISP, our upstream internet provider, shut us off, called us and said, look, I don't know if you read our terms of service, but we do not support porn sites. <laughs> and we're like, no, 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 it's not a porn site. And they're like, bullshit. We you don't know, know what the Redfin is? <laughs> it's real estate porn. A lot of people consider it real estate porn, right? But it's not actually porn. And they've literally never seen a traffic curve that had done anything like that other than porn sites. Oh, but you were still full-time on Amazon when you actually ended up launching that? Oh, oh! I mean, you own your, it's all your own IP on, at night and not on your separate computer. Jeff knows this now. It's, it's, it's not a big deal. But and in fact, like we had had pretty extensive discussions with the team at Amazon. I left Amazon like two weeks later and then went full time at Redfin. So maybe just a few things that I'm really curious about with that is that at Amazon, how did they run the business differently than all these other companies? I'm trying to learn it for myself and for the listeners. How are they running the businesses that maybe that you still use to this day? That's like the $100 billion question, right? <laughs> you know? I mean, it's such a big question. I, I wish I had a concise or clear answer to it. I mean, honestly, what it comes down to is I think Amazon is, in its history, about Jeff. It's about this person who lives by some very clear mantras, like, you know, in God we trust and everything else bring data, right? And, then it, and it's just absolute and unconditional. And he has then created a culture around himself. And now his S team, the senior executives around him, that all kind of imbibe these values and their willingness to take risks. It's still day one. When you go up to Jeff's office in Seattle, that's the thing that's written outside of his office still is it, it's still day one. And he views, again, that kind of frontierism view that the future holds more change than today. And so be ready to take risks to absolutely destroy whatever business you have today because we're not building for today, we're building for tomorrow. That's embodied in the successes like AWS and Amazon advertising. And it's embodied in their failures, like the Fire Phone, right? They were willing to build an entirely new user experience to try that out and see how it worked. It's embodied in some of their, their other failures that they launched when they launched categories that didn't work. They launched them too quickly. They launched Amazon Music too early. They still have Amazon Photos hanging around. I mean, I don't know anyone who uses Amazon Photos. I use Amazon Photos. I love it. I use it for print. If you go to amazon.com slash prints, you can print photos for nine cents each mailed to you. The silence is what I'm using to communicate to you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I'd give them $4 a year. I give Google, I don't know, like $150 a year because they store it all for me and they just store it at perfect resolution and the user interface is per- like Google Photos is a fantastic. But anyway, there's all these things. And, and you know, Amazon advertising is a great example of the embodiment of that principle of being aggressive and listening to data. The story about them building out Urabamba, which became the Google advertising project, is another one, right? Like one day we advertised a book. This is 2000. 2004, 2003, 2004, something like that. We advertised this book. 
It was by Madonna. It was a bestseller. You know what it was called? Sex. Oh, interesting. Turns out that word gets lots of clicks. I think we lost like $100,000 in a day. Because <laughs> we're advertising, you know, this picture of like a very risque cover and, uh, and the word sex. And so you get all these clicks and no conversions because people were actually looking for porn, right? Obviously. It was the willingness to lose that $100,000 that enabled them to make hundreds of millions of dollars. And he stuck with it because even though they lost $100,000, they didn't shut down the Google advertising project. They said, okay, I still believe in where we're going. Go fix that problem and get us where we're going. Another great example was with Amazon advertising. Before I brought that to, to Jeff and the S team, Amazon ran literally no ads on their website. And actually, if you're as a consumer, maybe you don't notice this, but there are tons of ads all over Amazon now. And you know, some people had kind of thought about different ideas for running ads and run them by Jeff. And he'd always said, no, it's a bad idea. We're done. Good conversation. But my team, what we did was we actually stumbled into it running this very complex Bayesian optimization algorithm for content. And we built this huge engine. It was called Kate, Contextually Aware Text Engine or something like that. But what it was supposed to do was find all these like really complex variables and optimize using machine learning to find what's the right content to show this customer. And we kind of assumed if you're looking at a Samsung TV, maybe we'll find like a cheaper TV or a more expensive TV and that will be what drives conversion. And my PhD that was running the project comes in my office the next morning after he'd completed his analysis. And he says, Sally, Sally, I am so sorry we failed. And I was like, what do you mean? Well, it turns out that we stumbled into this like ad that we were running on the website. It was just this little tiny ad. It was for the co-branded Amazon credit card. And no matter what the customer viewed before that, if they viewed a TV or they viewed Harry Potter books or they viewed this, you know, the Madonna book, no matter what, the most profitable thing to show consumers on specific spots on the website is this ad. And I was like, oh my God. So like, you don't need to have complex algorithms. This is horrible. So we all went home and I came back the next day and I said, oh my God, we just proved that advertising is like the most profitable thing we can do in specific situations on Amazon's website. No one's ever done that before. So we brought it to Jeff and he said, oh, this is about advertising again? Stupid. We're not doing it. Amazon is a retailer, not an advertiser. End of conversation. And I said, well, but here's the data. Like that. In half a second, he went from that's the dumbest idea in the world to let's go test that. And this is a man that, you know, you have people that there's stories all over the internet and in the press about like how driven he is and how intense he is. And he is. And he's just as intense about wanting to see actual data and information. And so that statement, well, then here's the experiments that we showed that prove that that, that intuition's wrong. This man in front of all of his direct reports had no egotistical issue with turning around and saying, bring the data in. Every leader everywhere talks about having that, and I've never seen it. Not like that. I wonder with Amazon, and this is what we're trying to figure out at AppSumo as well, is like, how do you run your process, but then also encourage innovation and failure? How is it a part of the, the structure, or even with Deep Sentinel? How are you thinking, all right, here's our main thing. Let's keep doing it. But like, let's try ads. Let's try this. Let's like, and I think that that balance is hard for businesses because you kind of just get used to, let's just do the things we know. There's a fundamental principle that, that kind of is almost at odds with that, which is kind of hard to tackle, which is, how do you have conversations that are constructive and not relitigate re the past? And how do you not relitigate the past, but then be open to new ideas? Because you say, well, we already talked about that. We already decided we're not going to do that. Well, but wait, let's reopen that conversation. And on one side, you say, look, if you are always willing to relitigate the past, you're always willing to open up a conversation that we've already closed, you're never going to make progress, right? And that's one of the key things about startups is that they're willing to say, all right, I'm going to make an intelligent guess here and we move forward. But on the flip side, you have to still be open to 
all right, let's go back to this idea and X, Y, and Z happened that make me want to rethink that. You know, that balance, I think, is always a judgment call. The key thing that I think Bezos exemplified in this example was a willingness to relitigate an issue given just even the smallest amount of new data that suggests you should reopen the issue and suggests that you maybe should come up with a new hypothesis or test. One of the other things, though, is that if you look at kind of the process of optimization versus innovation, you know, this is studied very heavily by a guy named Thomas S. Kuhn. I don't know if you've ever read about him. He wrote this book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, and it's a a philosophy of science book. And it talks about this S-curve where you have normal science, which is considered optimization, which is like you're learning about the basis of here's some paradigm and we're going to optimize that. And as you're optimizing that, you build up evidence that that model is not going to get you where you need to get to. Great example. In the early days of, of science, everyone thought that matter was made up of earth, water, fire, and air, right? Those were like the elements. And they did all the science to, to kind of like understand what that meant. But as they did that, they built up all this evidence that that was wrong. And then they found out a new model, which is the, you know, the atomic model, the elemental model, which is oxygen, hydrogen, and things like that, and molecules. And that that became a better model for describing this. And then we had this huge leap that said, oh, there's a molecular model. It's not just the elements. Water is hydrogen and oxygen. And then we have another leap, which is that hydrogen and oxygen aren't atomic. There's actually a nucleus and an electron. Then you get to you know quarks and physics. And each one of those is like this kind of leap from one type of knowledge to another paradigm of knowledge. And the people who were able to make that leap consistently were focused on the exceptions, meaning they were focused on what are all the things that don't fit into today's model? And I want to understand those even though I'm making all this progress on the things that make up the corpus of today's knowledge, I want to understand those exceptions. And as those exceptions build, I'm going to try to find a way to rationalize all those exceptions into a new model. The thing I was wondering for yourself is like, how have you then taken those lessons for Deep Sentinel? Like, is everything data? Is everything like, I have this grander vision that's bigger than everybody else's? Is it what are the exceptions that I'm not looking at? You know, for Deep Sentinel, I would say like I'm doing a B plus job so far at handling that problem. You know, this is a complex business. And so the number of times you have to be doing kind of that normal paradigm science is much more because we have a massive operations. We have hardware operations, software operations, AI operations, customer service, and people. We have live guards on our cameras, right? Like it's the only system that does what we do. And so we have to keep that part stable in some senses, but then we have to be willing to kind of make these exceptions. And so the way that I've handled that is organizationally. So I hired a really strong CFO who kind of handles the accounting of all those different pieces. And I hired a really strong COO and it makes it hard, right? Because now there's conflict, like there's this intense conflict that's manifest in our organization because our COO's job is to keep that engine running. And my job is to get the company from here to the next and then here to the next. And so he and I have to have and be willing to have like these really intense, very hard conversations about what the next is and how we can get there. I think one of the things that blew my mind, it's like Amazon made money, you know, business as usual. I think what blew my mind was how many freaking things they launched in Q3 or Q, yeah, Q4 of last year. I was like, holy moly, that is insane. The amount of things they actually did. And I guess I was curious, how the hell do they do that? Even at our smaller size of our, our business, I'm like, we've got a few projects we're working on with 50-ish people. And, and, and managing that is, is very complex. But it sounds like one thing that you said is the organizational structure of you know hiring exceptional people to help lead that. And then putting them on very, very long leashes with kind of strict boundaries that, you know, here's your objective, go get it. And even if you're going to do it in a way that I don't like, go try that out. 
your job is to get from point A to point B, not to do it the way that I want. And I think that's, you know, with very a few exceptions where, you know, there's a kind of a principle about what the there looks like, they have always focused on empowerment. And it's a place where you go, you know, and, and there's kind of a, a mantra among alumni that say it's a place that you go when you want to do something. Right. You can go to Google and get paid fine and sit there. And you, I mean, you know, the, <laughs> the cultural norms there, right? Show up at 11, have lunch, make sure you have time for coffee before you leave it too. Well, because it takes three hours to charge your electric car while you're in the parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> so right? Can't go home too soon. Yeah, don't go home too soon. Right. But Amazon's the opposite. Amazon's somewhere you go to get something done and it may burn you out and it may grind you and you may have to deal with a bunch of stuff because there's a lot of other people trying to do a lot of other stuff and sometimes it competes but you're all motivated to do something. You're all there to get something done. Otherwise, don't go to Amazon. Right? There's literally no reason to go to Amazon unless you are there to get something done. But if you want to get something done, it is a miraculous place. Right? Like I was 25. I had very little street cred for running an AI team. I'd done research at Stanford. I didn't have my PhD. I wasn't published wildly, but they gave me an AI team. But why did they do that? Because I had shown the gumption to do stuff with data. Not because I had the best papers and the best kind of theory, but because I had the gumption to do stuff. And that culture permeates. I don't know if they are maybe that risky anymore, but I mean, can you imagine that business was a couple billion dollars at that time? And we're going to take an initiative that reports into the CEO and then into the board of directors because it was being viewed by the board of directors. And we are going to hire some crackpot 25-year-old out of Stanford to do that. Hells no. Who else would do that? And what Amazon has is just this amazing capability, even at its current scale, to innovate at a level that I think is just, it's just amazing. Last thing on Jeff and Amazon, because it, it is a very unique case, right? Like there's not that many people in our generation, there's literally probably less than five that are at that level. The chance to get a, some insights, I think is fascinating for a lot of people. As Jeff has worked with you on Deep Sentinel, what kind of advice when you're talking about Deep Sentinel, which I'm going to you know promote the life out of, and, I, and I'm really excited about you guys. What is his advice different than, let's just say, other people's and his perspectives on things? When I talked to Jeff last, it was about launching our product. And he gave me three pieces of advice on three dimensions. And I don't know that these are different from what other people said. But again, in the context of problem selection, what I noted was that he selected these three things to talk about. The design of the product, the speed at which we move, and our willingness to experiment with the way that we interact with our customers. Now, is that different from what I talk about with other people? No, I'm mean, going to talk about those three topics with everybody, right? But I talk about other things too, and I don't talk about some of those with other people. He's, he chose those three. So when I left that meeting, finding that niche, that seam that you hit with the user experience that changes everything about the way customers view your product. I showed him a bunch of these different like, designs that we were thinking about in terms of the shape of the product and why we chose the one we did and how we're going to kind of brand and market around that. What I did was I left that and I wrote those down and I said, you know, and he said the same thing, I'm not going to give you specific advice about what's right or what's wrong, but think about those things. Think like long and hard about those variables. And so I wrote myself a note afterwards to stay focused on those three variables. I'll transition into Deep Sentinel a little bit here. So what Deep Sentinel is, is it's a home security provider that has combined artificial intelligence, hardware, software, and a guard service to create a really unique offering that is, I think, unconditionally and, and not really a question among any of our reviewers as the single safest home security system ever built, which is amazing. So going back to problem selection, I'm not in a spot economically where I can solve you know, climate change or global politics, but I am in a spot where I can build something that solves the safety of people in their homes and with their family. And when I look at something I want to leave my kids with, that's pretty amazing, right? Like we've actually saved people's lives in our business and we know that 
And that's remarkable. Now, the thing that I learned to translate that from Jeff, he said, think about the user experience. One of the things that we did that I hate as an engineer, and you know, hopefully I'm going to show some of my Bezosian genes by listening and, and kind of doing something that I didn't like. So this is our camera. It's designed to look pretty aggressive. Our next version is coming out in, in about uh, six months here. And it tells a story of this is not a Nest. It's not a, an Arlo. It's not an Apple product that's supposed to be nice and sit on your wall. This is designed to protect your home. In fact, we got a design award for being the most aggressive looking home security camera the other day. And uh, you know, it's great. This top part is an LED light ring and it's battery powered. And so whenever you turn the LEDs on, it's draining the power. And so I'd initially designed the product to not turn that on except for like in emergency situations. But my customers started asking me like, hey, I don't really know if it's working. You know, is it on? What's it doing? And so we changed it so that the AI, which runs in our hub, every time the AI is analyzing something, the AI turns on the red LED light ring and it spins. And it's the most remarkable feature I've accidentally launched ever. And my team, they came to me and said, we got to do this. We got to try it. And I was like, I hate this idea. It's, It's the worst. But we did it. And it is remarkable because our camera, every single time you come home and you're walking in with your kids, the red LED light ring turns on and tells you, hey, we're watching. If anything bad happens, I'm bringing a guard into this situation and we're going to review it. And it's this constant sense of like, my home is now intelligent. And one of the neat things about this too is because there's a live guard behind this during your onboarding process and throughout the use of the product, a guard will come over and speak to you. During onboarding, you, you wave to the camera and the camera says, hey, this is Jenny. I'm with Deep Sentinel Security. I see you just set up your home. It looks great. Thanks for trusting us with your home. I'm looking at the camera and it's pointed a little bit too far up. Can you just tilt it down a little bit? And you're doing a software company, right? Like everything's kind of down here. You're looking up and there's a person out of space talking to you about your home and helping you set this thing up. It's like amazing. And so what happens is over the course of that two, three, four times, you start realizing that this red LED light ring as a person. Literally like 10, 15% of our customers, when they come home, they wave to us. They wave to their cameras, right? Like you'd never wave to a ring or a stupid Arlo or a stupid Nest camera, right? Like you'd never do that. Our customers wave to us when they come home. On New Year's Day, we had five customers come outside in the middle of their New Year's party, come outside, come to the cameras and be like, hey guys, I hope you're listening. I just wanted to say thank you. I wanted to say thank you because you guys did X or Y or Z for me. And it's all the time. It's the most like miraculous feature that this red LED light ring transforms. It's a technical feature. Anyone can build a stupid LED. I've got LEDs sitting right here in my desk next to me. But the fact that we tied that user experience together creates this connection between our customers and an inert object, which is a camera that is live. It's emotional. It's real. It's meaningful. And it means security. Well, let's take a step back on, on Deep Sentinel. So I bought a little house. I live in a cottage, basically, in Austin, in a good area. And I've always lived in condos. And this is the first time I've been in a house by myself. And I'm scared to be home. I sleep with a gun and a taser. Okay. Two weeks ago, I, I took with Tim Kennedy a uh, survival self-defense class with gun training. Oh, and, Jesus. Okay. All right. With gun training for half the day. And then the other half the day was jujitsu. And then that led me to like, well, I'm scared of being home at night and uh, being alone. Like literally no joke, I'm on my couch with a gun looking at the windows. Yeah, either you're awake all the time with a gun or you're not. We have a lot of homeowners that that are gun owners that are our customers. And you come to realize if you really are intelligent about this, which I think most gun owners are, are very kind of thoughtful about how their ownership of a gun and what that means, it doesn't solve the problem. You biologically have to sleep. And if you're asleep, there's a whole lot of time or you're at work, right? Like there's just no way to kind of protect this thing 
that kind of gets to the point of protecting yourself and your family. And so the point of Deep Sentinel is to solve the security problem, right? There's a lot of kind of solutions out there. There's burglar alarms, there's cameras, there's all this kind of stuff. There's a lot of stuff. I've gone I'm deep stuff. on it. I've called it Operation Dragon Flame. Like I've got stuff all over that. The house now is getting secured. Deep Sentinel is the only thing that actually is active. And we built that because of that observation. I had a home invasion near my, my home. And a home invasion means it's not a burglary, it's not a robbery. So robbery is when somebody uses a, takes your money from you face-to-face. A burglary is when somebody breaks in your home. A home invasion is when someone breaks in your home and you are home. And so there's a home invasion. These people were held in their home and they had an alarm, they had cameras, and there was nothing that happened. All these things prevented nothing. And even if you're a gun owner, unless you have the gun in your hand at that time, all the time, there's still like literally nothing that's gonna happen. And I would not want to live holding a gun 24 seven in my home. Like just, there's just too many things that could go wrong. I've done that. I've lived like that before. And I, I used to carry a, a handgun all the time. There's just too many things that could go wrong. I've got two little kids now. It's just not the way that I want to live. So I started really digging into the question of there has to be something better. I interviewed everyone. I did it. I wrote this huge flyer. I did a big research project. I didn't do this to start a business. I did this to solve this for my family. And I came to the conclusion, there's literally nothing better. So then I went to my chief of police, this guy named Dave Spiller. Tell me what's better. Tell me what's better. There has to be something. And he said, you know, Sally, there really isn't. The only thing that I know that's better is the stuff that Zuck has. And that's full-time security, people watching the cameras. And Zuck spends, like you probably know this, like about 100 to 120,000 bucks a month <laughs> on video surveillance, right? And I looked at getting that for my family. At the absolute lowest end, it was like $10,000 a month. But the reason it works is because it's live. It's outside your home. It's perimeter protection. It's getting them before they get into your home. That's uh, what the military calls left of bang. It's getting them before the incident, before the actual explosion, the first bullet, the first window breaks. It's left of the moment. It's before this moment of interaction. And if you do it out there and you're using video and you're live, you can actually have interactions. You can verify the crime. You can interact with the person. You can usually prevent something from happening. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, but it's 10,000 bucks a month minimum. And so I was like, oh my God, that's horrible. But then I started digging into it and realized that if I were able to combine AI, if we could build our own cameras and do vertical integration, if we could figure out a way to solve the actual monitoring problem better and the people part of the problem better, if we could arm them with AI as well, we could create an entirely different solution. And that's how we came up with Deep Sentinel was how do we create the safest home security possible? How do we actually solve that problem? I can tell you a year after we launched in our test markets that we have now thousands of homes we're protecting. We've stopped hundreds of crimes, everything from like simple package theft and like trespassing to we've stopped home invasions. We've stopped armed home invasions where people came to the house with a gun. And even if you have a gun with you, having a voice tell you, hey, I see you, I need you to leave the property is most of the time until you're actually in it. Again, that kind of concept of left of bang prevention still is enough to get people to leave. We prevented people from stealing cars, preventing people from stealing motorcycles. And in fact, guns are one of the most interesting topics because a lot of times on our ads, people say, well, you know, you're going to meet my you know, 20 odd six when you come through my door. And yes, I'm a, a big proponent of the Second Amendment. I grew up in a rural area. I understand why people need guns. And I, I am not one of those people that is far left, crazy kind of land. Guns are a necessary part of American culture, but they don't solve this problem right? Because most of the time when this type of stuff happens, you're asleep, you're not ready for it. You're not sitting with the gun pointed at the door with one eye open. Let me read you this letter from a customer of mine. Please. This customer sent me a letter after someone had attempted to break into their home. 
And this customer is a gun owner. He's a very, very strong proponent of the Constitution and of the Second Amendment, and he carries a weapon. And he said, let's keep this between us. Looking at what happened here and the hypothetical of my wife being home alone, and she carries her weapon with her all the time. In that scenario, Deep Sentinel, by preventing this man from coming in our home, just saved my wife six figures in legal fees and saved her the horrific memories that would have haunted her for the rest of her life from having pulled the trigger and killing that man. That's a freaking intense letter, right? Not only do we save this man's life who was about to break into her home, he has no idea, right? He tries to break into the home. We say, this is Deep Sentinel Security. You need to leave. And he turns around and leaves. What that man didn't know is that this guy's wife was sitting literally like 10 yards away with her rifle on their couch. And had he just opened that next door, he was dead. But the interesting thing about this letter is from a very conscious and thoughtful gun owner, not only did we save that guy's life, we changed her life too. I mean, we all have friends that are in the military. I have had deep and long conversations with those of them that have had to pull their weapon and kill people. There's not a single one of them, at least the ones that I know, that are like gung-ho about that. They are very gung-ho about supporting America and they would do it again. Every single one of them is haunted by the having to do that. And so I am very proud of Deep Sentinel that not only are we able to protect people, we're able to protect gun owners in a way that no one has ever been able to solve this problem for before, which I think is just amazing. I love it. I've got it and I'm about to install it this weekend. The thing I was curious about, so for people that are listening, the way that Deep Sentinel, in my opinion, works is that you literally get a 24-7 guard watch of your home cameras that can warn people, sound alarms, and call the police in real time. My ex from years ago had ADT and they secret, yeah. they sneakily, I would say sneakily made her sign a three-year agreement that didn't really do much and you're now locked into a thing that, that isn't as effective. One thing I, I was curious about, and I want to take a step back afterwards on Deep Sentinel, is that how many times have you warned that you've observed that you warned someone from coming into the house that they still go in? So we have had maybe two or three incidents where the verbal intervention has not worked and then we've had to contact the police. We have not had one of those be resulting in a burglary. There are usually things like, we warn you and you still steal a package. We warn you and you're still trespassing on a business property, for example. We've not had anything where the verbal warning resulted in escalation with one of our customers. You know, probabilistically, something like that might happen. But what we've seen consistently is that most of these people do not want to get caught. Most of these people do not want a felony. These are crimes of opportunity. And when that opportunity is taken away and this is no longer a freebie, they immediately turn around and go. One of the problems with that, by the way, from a growth perspective, Deep Sentinel's videos suck. Ring has all these amazing videos of like, here's a guy stealing my shit. Here's a guy breaking into my house and beating the <laughs> hell out of my door and then, and then shooting my wife. Oh my God. And they run this headline that is like, Ring catches intruder breaking in home. Ring didn't catch anything. <laughs> Ring was watching and recording. All of our videos are like super boring because dude starts to break down window, right? Like there was one two weeks ago, this guy starts like putting a shoulder in the door. Boom, within five seconds, our guard, hey, you need to stop. This is Deep Sentinel Security. Guy walks away. It's like not that interesting of a marketing video. Can I pitch an idea that I was telling Thomas, the yes. guy who works? So All I was day. telling Thomas, you should get celebrities or even non-celebrities and then have a big challenge to let them break into a house and then see if they can get caught. Because then I was like, you know, I was like, just have, you know, people, oh, break into my house and like make it kind of like the opposite and then find out that, that they can't break in the house because they're going to get caught. We're going down that path of like, well, one of the things we've realized is like, we do a great job of telling the technical story of our business, which helps for conversion. 
right? So if you look at kind of the, the overall funnel, it just really doesn't help at the top of the funnel. At the top of the funnel, people want a little bit of narrative. They want a little bit of challenge. They want something a little bit interesting. And so all of our videos, our actual videos are really phenomenal from there down. What we found that works at the top of the funnel are things like that. They're like, they're a little bit about our space, but they're a little bit more entertaining. They're a little bit more cheeky. They're a little more catchy. We're building out that top of funnel right now. The other thing that I would recommend or encourage you, and I want to talk back, come back to the beginning of Decentral. You guys do have these videos. They're just not put well together. Like you have a video that I, cause I, I spent like literally like an hour watching all of your videos. You had a video where a guy brought a gun to the guy's house and the homeowner came outside and the guy with the gun went to the back. This is like CSI law and yeah, order shit. shit. But the video was kind of put together and not really produced. And I loved your comment about Ring. Ring is showing you all the bad stuff that's happened. With Deep Sentinel, you're preventing it. What I'm spending kind of 20% of my time on as the CEO right now is going through producing these stories now. And you're, you're 100% right. I definitely also could think you could work with like Marquise Brown, the guy on YouTube, just more YouTubers and be like, hey, we'll help you protect your house. Because like Tim Kennedy. So he's the one that kind of put me onto home security. So he's in Austin. He's a sniper, UFC fighter, all this stuff. He got robbed. Well, they tried to rob his house. And this guy is literally a sniper, a fighter. Like this guy is not the guy's house you want to rob. And with Ring, it showed him that the guy was there, but it didn't do anything. So Tim had to come out with a gun. Which, by the way, you don't want to do as a responsible gun owner, right? Like, yeah, I will do it if I have to. But you just came out of your house with a gun, which means you've just raised it to that level of escalation. So when I've taken my concealed class, I think you said a point that I never knew before, which is if you shoot someone, you're the suspect. At the very least, right, you're looking at about a hundred to $250,000 of legal fees, no matter what, because you took someone's life and you have done it righteously, right? But you should take it really seriously. It's not a joke, right? This is not like a rah, rah, I'm defending my house. Ha ha, good for me. It's a very, very serious thing. It is. I fully agree. For marketing, I, I can introduce you to Tim. I think you guys should have more celebs. I would love it. Well, I'll put you in touch with Tim. I think you guys should have more people who are in home security and safety. I would say almost preppers. Those early adopters, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, those people are like talking about guns and they're talking about safety and having that. The second thing, you said that Deep Sentinel is all you need. Do you believe that? I'm not trying to call you out on that, but I guess I was just thinking like, what else should I do for my house? Yeah, I mean, if you think about security, like from a very sophisticated standpoint, I think about it as layers, right? So I use Deep Sentinel security as my active security and that's my perimeter protection. I still lock my doors, right? Because if you don't lock your doors, Deep Sentinel still has to respond. So you have to buy us time five, 10, 15, 25 seconds at your door. I still lock my windows and I still have dorm window sensors for the final backup. I have never had my dorm window sensors provide any value to me as a homeowner. And I've had dorm window sensors since I was little. Deep Sentinel provides value on a daily, weekly basis, whether that's just a very simple thing. I have a bunch of different contractors and service people that come by my house. I don't know their backgrounds. I've run background checks on almost all of them just because I'm a security type person. But sometimes they'll bring a subcontractor with them, like my cleaning lady will bring someone with them that I have not cleared. And then they know, because they will come to our front door and my wife won't answer for a minute. They know, oh, hello, this is Deep Sentinel Security. And they immediately know that this is not one of those houses that they're going to go tell their friends or you know whatever that it's a potential mark. And so it's this active level of deterrence that kind of, to your point, has this whole word of mouth aspect to it that also plays out there. Deep Sentinel provides that entire kind of halo around your house to keep people away. I do believe that security is a many-layered thing, right? If you look at people that take security seriously, specifically like Israeli security, right? Israeli security is not point, it's system, right? And you always look at the system. Israelis always look at, in terms of their border, it's not just about the border protection, it's about the policies, it's about the border itself, it's about the guards, it's about the equipment, it's about every single thing in the system. Deep Sentinel would be the strongest, most effective, and most important piece of that system, but it's not the only one that I use. 
How do you do background checks on people? Do you use Checker or what do you use? I have them sign a contract. So in California, you have to have them sign a contract. They agree to do it in return for being a worker. And so then I have them sign a contract and submit an employment background check. Is there a service you recommend for that? There's a lot of them out there. I think we use HireSafe is the one that we use. Have you ever found people that you've not hired because of that? Yes. Oh, interesting. A lot. That's interesting. So in terms of home security, basically deep set on the outside, which is what I'm putting, I'm putting floodlights. So there's no hidden areas. Yep. Yep. I bought shatterproof film, like 3M film you could put on your window so people can't break in the windows. And then the other smaller things I've done is like locking my gates. So I put locks on my gates and my electricity panel. One thing I was wondering is that people are like, well, I've got Nest and I've got whatever Arlo, which I do have an Arlo at their office and I have a Nest at home. Do you ever think those guys will just add dumb security people to their offerings as like an uh, add-on? Yeah, you know, I've, I've thought about it. And one of the things that I've really learned over the years here is that building businesses, while you can always kind of pivot from one direction to another, you build a culture and you build a DNA of a business. And like folks like Arlo, they're fundamentally a hardware business. They think about the cost of their what's called bill of materials and how they assemble it. And to add into that, I'm going to build a best of breed AI that runs real time in a new piece of hardware. I'm going to add to that an entirely new software stack that's required to do real time streaming of videos, which, by the way, we had to write from scratch three times in order to get this to work because it it has to be real time. If you've got rings in Arlo's, you know, it takes like 10 to 15 seconds to spin up a, a live view. That doesn't work, right? If you're actually providing security, that doesn't work. And so we had to redo all of those different things. And then we had to build a service on top of it. In order to do all of those things, I think it's just way beyond the scope of one of those kind of larger businesses to pivot into that. The second thing is that in order to get to the margin that we wanted to get to and the price point, to get to a $50 price point for consumers and a $100 price point for businesses, that's really hard. I mean, that is really, 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 really hard. And we had to engineer all of that to be able to get to that price point. Remember, we're going from a market price of seven or $8,000, which people don't believe. Like, there's no way you can get from seven or $8,000 to 50 bucks. Like, that's literally the market price for remote video surveillance is seven to 8,000 bucks to 50 bucks. Let me just tell you, there's a lot of work going into that. Funny enough, we were, last month we were in Colorado and our Uber driver was like, yeah, I do private security when I'm not in the off season for a billionaire in the Bay Area. And I was like, well, I need this for my house. I was like, how much is it going to cost for you to just come sit outside my door and just sleep outside my house at night? And he's like 70,000 bucks a year. Yeah, there you go. And by the way, that's, that's one guy. So I did want to jump back because I promised I would. You did the research. Were you working at the time? And was it just like, hey, I want here's a business I want to create or I just want to solve this problem? Why won't you guys be the next big thing? Because you guys have all the pieces put together. It's one of those tough questions that you think about, like the interface between a product and its market, right? And sometimes markets are really ingrained in buying a specific way. And some of the best companies out there just figure out like, how do I trick customers into moving from buying this way into buying this way? And that's like what all enterprise businesses are about. If you're going to innovate in enterprise, you have to kind of find some way to, to wiggle your way into the current buying pattern in order to sell something new to them. So that's why Salesforce.com, I think it's just like an amazing company because they found this way to take a new product and sell it into the old selling motion. And then it turned into the exact same old product, by the way, over, over enough time, right? Because it's now complex and, and really deeply integrated. But I think we're going to face that same thing where you said, you know, it, the customers are just used to buying ADT and buying door and window sensors and thinking about security in this one particular way. There's really nobody out there that will go into Google and type in, give me cameras where somebody actually responds and protects my house. 
that's not a search term. And it's what it should be, right? Like that, that's the experience I had when my neighbor had that home invasion is there has to be something better, right? Like give me a home security system that really works. That's not where people are at. People are kind of used to this very stagnant old market where they just want to do things the old way. And, you know, Redfin, we talked about that a little bit earlier, is one of the great examples where I think we figured out a hook, right? Where what people are searching for is they're searching for addresses, they're searching for neighborhoods. And by providing more data into that, we had this really unique way of finding consumers where they were searching for it. And so with Deep Sentinel, we've got to find that same way to take consumers who are buying burglar alarms and just kind of grab them and shake them and say, hey, I know you're, you're like in the market to buy a burglar alarm because you just got burglarized. But what you need to know is, hey, those don't work. Burglar alarms are totally dead. And they piss off police departments because they're 99% false alarms. In fact, LA County published stats a couple of years ago, 15% of the total budget of LA County's policing budget went to responding to false alarms. And their chief of police came forward and said, look, for us to do our job for you, for us to protect you as our citizens, we have to stop responding to burglar alarms because they're a waste of time. And we already talked about how from a consumer experience, like they suck too, right? Like they're all false alarms for you too. So when I wake up at one o'clock in the morning because my wife left our garage door open a hair and then the wind blew it open, all it did is create fear. Maybe the first 10 times it creates fear. And then after that, you're just like, I'm not even looking for a burglar in my home. I'm running to the freaking panel to turn the sum gun off to just leave me alone. There's no value in that at all. Once the person gets past the yard sign, 100% of the value of a burglar alarm is gone. So what we recommend to people is go buy a yard sign. You can buy them on Amazon. They're 15 bucks. Let's come back to the beginning of Deep Sentinel and your a neighbor had an invasion and then you were just like, hey, there's got to be a better solution. What I'm curious about is like from idea to reality. Do you want to see it? Like I, I can share the, some of the research if you want to see some of it. Yeah, I wanna, yeah, I'd love to see it or hear it. I made a flyer. I called all the, the security companies, right? And I called ADT in the Bay Area. We have Bay Alarm. I called Brinks. I called Simply Safe. I called all these people. And then I, I went and I interviewed a bunch of camera people. I asked them all the, you know, all the standard questions like, how does this work? What does it do? How does it actually prevent crime? When I realized I was screwed, there was this moment that I'd re- like the whole game was up. I'm sitting in my home and I've got this salesman from ADT and he's in my home. And I say, you know, how does this actually prevent crime? What's the new technology that you guys have like deployed that actually like prevents crime? And his answer was, the sensor, it's wireless. It's this new technology, wireless. And he's like looking me in the eyes. And I could tell I am being sold a set of steak knives right now. This guy is not going to leave my house until I sign something. That's the whole game. This is a hard sell. And this is why, by the way, Vivint, if you look up Vivint, Vivint had to settle with the Federal Trade Commission because they had misleading sales character things. And they had people signing these three-year contracts. They didn't know they were signing three-year contracts. The salesman would be like, oh, no, don't worry about it. You can cancel after six months, which he would say verbally, which we as human beings actually see. Like, this person's telling me this face-to-face. That's got to be honest. And they were just lying straight up, like, look you in the eye you can cancel after six months. If you try to cancel a Vivint contract after six months, first of all, they put you into this phone queue that didn't have people answering it. Secondly, you finally did stop paying. They would send collection after you within like 30 days. Third, right, they would like do this like full-on legal thing where they would sue you and just like come after you. And so they ended up having this huge investigation by the FTC that they would settle with them. That's what you're dealing with with the alarm industry is a hard sell with these guys that will just look you in the eye and lie to you. And like, this is 2000, what was it, 2015? 
wireless is not a new technology, dude. He's like, no, you don't get it. They're wireless sensors. All right, we're done. Well, so how did you go from that to saying, this is the problem I want to work on for the next X years? That was when I, I interviewed that chief of police, right? So I interviewed Chief Spiller. He told me about remote video surveillance. I started looking at it. I started interviewing people that were doing it. I interviewed some of, I actually, in fact, interviewed some of Zuck's guards. I interviewed some of the guards for other billionaires out there. And I started learning what they do and how it works. And what I realized is that the value is this very small slice of time. So that guy that's going to charge you $70,000 a year, all the value happens in those three interactions they're going to have with someone coming up to your house or 10 a month. And so what I learned with like some of these people is like the big secrets of the trade were their job is so boring that they're learning these new lighting techniques. So they would get like new LED lights that have like this new frequency that don't let you fall asleep. And then at one o'clock in the morning, you do push-ups at two o'clock in the morning, you do jumping jacks at three o'clock in the morning, you have to go out and go for a walk in the cold in order to stay awake. And I was like, oh my God, this is all waste, right? There's this huge amount of value buried in all this waste. That's what AI does. And I had this like light up moment that I was like, oh my God, AI isn't a technical innovation that makes smarter cameras. It does, it makes smarter cameras. What AI does is it changes the business process. It changes the human part of the work to be efficient. The average consumer home from an external security perspective doesn't need 24-7. It needs 24-7 availability for 700 seconds of security a day, about 12 minutes a day. That's when people are entering or exiting the property. That's the only time that you need real people watching your home. But you can't choose when that 700 seconds is. You need to have someone on call 24-7, and that's what we do. By spreading these guards across thousands of homes across America, we have 24-7 guards that are available at one-second increments but they're available for the 700 seconds that your home needs it and my home needs it and every one of our other thousands of customers when they need it. And when I realized, oh my God, I could use this technology not to innovate just technology, but to innovate a business process and solve the problem and that this problem was real. This problem is a safety issue. That's when I got really, really passionate about it. I dug in. I realized no one else was going to do it. Right To build this business was incredibly hard, Noah. I mean, crazy hard. If I could talk to me five years ago and just give myself one piece of advice, it'd be like, buckle up, son of gun. You've got to build the hardware, AI, software, and service. Name another business that has those four components other than Amazon. Name a like, product business, right? Like Peloton's the closest thing. They don't have AI. Peloton does not have two-way audio. They don't have any real-time interaction. So think of like Peloton as an intense, kind of difficult, complex business. And we've added two incredible components to that. And it's real-time. And it's mission critical, right? If my Peloton doesn't work, I can still pedal the darn thing, right? Like life goes on. This is a really intense business. And that's what I love about it, right? Like from an investment perspective, like, hey, Noah, I want, I'm Noah, I want to invest in Deep Sentinel. What's sweet about that is we've gone through all the incredibly complex motions here. And for anyone to come in behind us and try to replicate this business, bring it on, right? Like I, I kind of feel like Elon Musk, like let me lay out our business plan and what I'm going to do. And here's how we're going to do it. And you're welcome to try to copy it. I wish you the best of luck. Please give me a call. I'll buy you a glass of wine when you're done trying. As you're interviewing the security for celebrities, what was surprising about it? And then how did you identify the aha moment? So the surprising thing, again, like I said, was like, A, how all their focus, like when they were talking about what they did, it was all about staying awake. Almost none of it was about, here's how I do my job. And it's like, now there are those people, like the bodyguards, the people that are on physical security with celebrities those people have a different job. 
Like that's a completely different thing. I'm talking about the people that are doing the remote video surveillance. They do literally nothing all day long. They're dealing with the same things we are, like homeless people that are approaching. They're dealing with people that are just loitering. They're dealing with like this stuff and that stuff. That was number one. Number two was that when you actually look at how effective it is, because their number one problem is staying awake, they actually miss stuff all day long. And you end up reading about it in the tabloids, right? Okay, they fell asleep for 30 minutes. And in that 30 minutes, somebody walks right up to some celebrity's house and, you know, takes a leak on their door. And no one did anything about it until the next day the guy slips and falls and, and there you go. And it happens all the time because most of their job is just trying to stay awake. And if you think about the human brain, the human brain does not deal well with staring at something that's not moving for a really, really long period of time. So my aha moment happened when two things happened. Number one, I realized that the AI could make it financially effective. And then number two was I read this story about how ineffective it was. I think it was the San Diego Zoo. There was a zoo and the zookeeper had left the elephant's door open. The aha moment, though, wasn't that the door was open. The aha moment was this video of a guard watching the video monitors slumped over his chair asleep, watching the elephant go out the gate of the zoo right next to another guard who also was sound asleep. And it's like, oh my God, like this problem of low frequency events is in fact the problem. What we have at Deep Sentinel by having the AI filter out so every single event has something going on. Every single time there's an event coming into a guard, there's a person leaving, a person going, a person loitering, there's a fight, there's an interaction. So our guards aren't watching boring monitors. Our guards 24-7 are watching stuff happen across these properties. There's always something interesting happening. Secondly, because there's always something interesting happening, I can instrument their consoles. When you have a console that nothing's happening, you can't instrument it. There's nothing to measure. Like at best, what you want to do is you want to put a blood pressure and a, like a heart rate monitor on their finger. Like, did they fall asleep? But me, my guards are doing something every second. There's a new video every five seconds. So every five seconds, I have an opportunity, just like you instrument your websites and you instrument growth, I can instrument my operations. And that's when I realized not only could I do this cheaper, I could do it better. So actually, all these celebrities are paying hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of dollars for security. I challenge them. I bet you 10 to 1 for a lower price, I can do a better job. That's funny. The thing that you made me reflect on is that years ago, I went to Warren Buffett's uh, annual shareholder meeting. His home address is public. And so after the meeting, I was like, the next day, I was like, let's just go to his house. Oh, you're that guy. I'm the guy. Anyway, so I start walking on the property and I walk in the driveway and I'm walking up to the door. And what did I hear? Sir, please duck away from the house. Yeah. So it was literally there. He's paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for what Deep Sentinel does for 50 bucks a month. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So I think for a lot of people out there that are thinking like, hey, I I have an idea for some type of product. Maybe they don't have AI. How did you say, hey, here's my realization. How did you go from that to, you know, prototype beta? So I tested it, right? And I was testing probably 10 different ideas at the time. Until I had that aha moment with home security, it actually was below the fold. I had a list of about 25 different businesses that use AI. And that was my filter and home security was down here at the bottom. When I had that aha moment, it moved up to the top. And so then I went and I met with consumers. I'd say five or 10 of the top ideas. I interviewed people. How important is this problem for you to solve? If I were to solve it, would you pay me for it? If I solved it, would you ever want to go away from it? Would it change your life in such a way that you would never want to go backwards? Some of them were like cancer detection. And there wasn't a way to kind of get the payer aligned with the solution in a way that I wanted to tackle it. What I found with Deep Sentinel was that the consumer wanted me to solve it. 
the consumer wanted to pay me when I solved it. They were willing to pay me an amount that I was able to build a really nice business out of. And there were lots of them that were looking for this problem. And then the most important one was that when I was done, once I had this installed, then you can interview any of our customers. And this is my favorite thing. They will not say like, I like it and I'm not going to cancel. They will literally say, I love it. And it changed my life. I get an email every single day, Noah, that says, I cannot believe this. Your sales guy got on the phone with me. I bought it. And it's better than what he told me it was going to be. I have never slept this well in my entire life. And Noah, you're going to have that experience this weekend. You're going to install this. And you're going to realize that there are people literally watching that plate glass window that you built for yourself. And that you can still have your gun. That's fine. But put your gun in the safe. Because Deep Sentinel, for a gun owner, is going to buy you another 30 seconds to minute of notification. And you can now live a safer life. Like, that's insane. That is the most impactful thing that I can give my kids. My kids, I had a bad day the other day. It was about five weeks ago. We had a bad sales day in the middle of December, right? And I needed December to be good. So I came home and I was a little bit bummed. And my wife said, you know, you look bummed. Are you okay? And I said, yeah, you know, we just didn't have that many sales. My little eight-year-old daughter, Cecilia, she looks me in the eye and she says, daddy, that's not what this is about. Did you save anyone's life today? Oh, God. Right? (laughs) But that's what's neat about this business is, by the way, we do. Like not every day necessarily. But we actually do. And that to me was the most important thing because when you look at, again, kind of problem selection, this is the type of business where when Deep Sentinel is successful, we're going to have almost zero churn long term as a business because it is that important to people's life. It's not like insurance where you just buy it and it kind of rolls through. It is a life changing thing that you never want to go back to. You never want to go back to just having an alarm after you have Deep Sentinel. I was talking with a friend this morning and one of the things that was interesting is which products have you bought that you still love? Like I will say my Tesla, I've owned it for a year now. I still love it. I love not having to drive. And, you know, AirPod Pro, another game changer. And, you know, I think as you're saying that with Deep Sentinel, there aren't that many products that were just like, I like it, but which ones do I love? I spend a lot of my time. In fact, behind me, there's like a bunch of books on parenting. I think about parenting a lot because parenting is like one of those foundations of society. And one of the number one rules about parenting is, especially for young children, the long-term outcome of a child is highly dependent on how safe they feel. And if you think about it, that's like the pa- very Pavlovian, right? But for human beings, the safer you feel, the better you interact with everyone around you. It's the concept of zero-sum game. If your life is a zero-sum game, you're going to constantly be in conflict and fighting with the people around you. If you feel safe, you're more willing to be charitable. Maybe not charitable, I give $100,000 to some cancer research, but charitable, I'm going to let that old lady cross the street before I zoom through the crosswalk. And it makes everything about society work better. Our impact to society, maybe I'm, you know, I'm trying to give myself a bigger impact than real, but I, I really believe this. Like Our impact about making people feel safe at home changes their interaction with everyone for the entire rest of their day. And when you talk about love, like that's something that's crazy, right? And it's a deep, meaningful emotion. And the fact that we can really create that with our customers, I don't think there's a lot of products where you really have that opportunity. And that to me is hugely impactful. So you had this idea, you had an aha moment, you talked to a bunch of people. How long and and how did you go from that idea to I've created a product that's working? I actually built prototypes of almost all top of the five, the first five ideas that I had. And so then I, I built like very lightweight prototypes for each of them, put them in people's hands. And one of them was like water filtration. One of them was a power management. One of them was Deep Sentinel. 
One of them was like a video game AI. That one was silly. We're talking about loving products. I started asking consumers, like, how did this make you feel? And I did this little survey, right? Like, how did it make you feel? Would you be willing to buy? And then when I looked at all of them, this one stood out as having that long-term value, right? We charge a service to our customer. It's $50 a month, every single month. That's a hefty fee to ask an average American to pay 50 bucks a month for something. And the fact that we can create enough value that that's worth doing for a consumer to me, drives a couple of different things. One, is this an important decision for me in my life, right? And if your number two decision or number three decision or number four decision, it's very hard to change a market because it's just not important enough that I am going to spend time doing research to find something different. I'm going to go by the default path. But if this really is an important problem for me, what we find with all of our customers, once they view the first video about Deep Sentinel, they're like, oh my God, that solves this huge problem for me. Our average customer, by the time they call into our sales line, has watched like 10 or 15 videos about Deep Sentinel. You don't get that with most products, right? Like it's not an impulse buy. It is a meaningful, like deeply intense decision that lasts over a lifetime of relationship with the customer. And that to me ended up driving my commitment to it. I then pitched a bunch of investors. I got their feedback on what they liked and what they didn't like. And then I decided to move forward. Did you raise money? And then how long did it take from money to like actually having a prototype? I put a bunch of money on my own in to building the prototypes and doing the first tests. I then raised a, a friends and family round of about a million dollars, built our first in-market prototypes. And then we kind of put together a bunch of market research that said, here's people's willingness to buy. Here's the addressable market. Here's the product that we're going to launch with. And here's the problem we're going to solve. And here's the pricing we're going to go to market with. And then we raised our Series A. Uh, Shasta led that. And it started out as a $7 million round and then over time grew to a $23 million round over the course of, of three years. Because it's a hardware product, we actually did have to raise our Series A over a couple of different tranches. But we did end up you know, raising capital to do that because it's a pretty capital intensive business. And so how long did it take from the beginning to actually have a product on your door working? To use other people's cameras before we used our own cameras took about three months. To start using our own cameras and prototype took about another year and a half. That was hard. And then to get to market took another six months. So two years, give or take? Two and a half years, yeah. Damn. That's a long time, dude. That's a long time. This, like I said, like I would invite anyone to try to like follow in my footsteps. It's a tough business. It was very, very hard to get here. I think one of the things that you said that that was an interesting thing that I think a lot of other business owners are challenged with is that if you're, there's two types of businesses in my mind. There's inventing new categories and then there's enhancing categories. So Uber, yes, there's taxis, but like having, getting in strangers cars is a, is a brand new category. Totally new category. Versus, you know, I'm going to do a simple one. Like let's say like sumo.com, we do email marketing pop-ups. You know, email has been around a long time. We made a really interesting, simple, affordable, free tool to start with. Like it wasn't a revolutionary category. And so what I think the, what the way I've always perceived it is there's higher risk with the first one because it, no one knows about it and then higher reward and lower risk, but lower reward on the second one. You said it earlier and I'm curious how you guys have explored it. Like there's been ADT and there's been Brinks and there's been these kind of like archaic shitty companies in my opinion. People aren't thinking, hey, I can have 24-7 security around my house for a very affordable amount. Like, how'd you guys start getting some of these first customers and educating them? And it sounds like you're still figuring some of that out. So I'm curious to see how well, you guys I mean, we're definitely it. still figuring it out, right? Like we found that that in general, video is a really effective way to tell stories. As you noted, we're not doing a great job of telling the story, but the customers that are interested in it, even though we've made it kind of hard to buy, I think they've done a great job of researching and going into it. The second thing that we found is that when we can find adjacencies, right, there's people that are willing to do research. We're able to kind of bring people in from burglar alarm searches and just kind of, like I said, shake them and say, hey, there's something better. There's something better. You got to think about this differently. 
we found that in general, people that are buying the rings are not effective customers, right? Because if you think about kind of the crossing the chasm model of customers, people that are buying rings today are way over in the laggards phase of the market. And so in general, those people are not going to be looking at, I'll take a risk on a new product in order to get this new value. And so we also have to combine that by thinking about how do we find early adopters that are in adjacencies? And that's really kind of the key area where, where we've been innovating the most. We do find YouTube influencers are effective. We find that YouTube as a channel is a very effective channel. And we found that going through an educational process, this again, it's not generally a one hour purchase, right? AirPods Pro, even at a high price, is like, a, I'll watch a half minute video and I get Apple's brand and I'll buy it. This is not that, right? Like this, for better or worse, this is a very considered purchase. And so we have to really kind of nurture them and move them through that process from the top of the funnel of piquing their interest, getting them to ask a couple of key questions, and then educating them, here are the answers to the question. Like I said, a lot of times by the time somebody's calling in to place their order, they've watched over an hour and a half of our videos. Our most watched organic video is a 20-minute video of me showing how to install the product. It's 20 minutes long. Video completion rate's like 70%. And they're just really engaged in understanding how does this thing work? What does it do? Okay, I get the AI piece. Oh my gosh, there's guards. There's guards and AI. Oh my gosh, I get how those come together. Wow, here's this drumbeat of crimes that we stopped. And because we stopped about 20 crimes a week, we started in 2020 doing this repetitive video where we show all of the little crime stops that we do in a mashup video. And so you're able to see like, oh my gosh, they're doing this time and time again. It's not just we stopped one home invasion or we stopped one motorcycle theft or one car theft. We're doing it every single week. I loved your point about adjacency. That is really interesting, like kind of piggybacking, like, hey, if you're a gun owner, you're probably gonna like this. If you're a prepper, you're probably gonna like this. If you're willing to, like, what have you found are the key indicators? The number one key indicator is old school demographics, unfortunately, plus like income and, you know, and and age and sex and stuff like that, plus interest in home security. That's generally been one of our, our top categories. The other one that we found is that if you're comparing alarm systems, we fit into that very well as well. So if you're interested in trying to figure out what's the difference between ADT and Vivint, and you're trying to tear this space apart, you're already asking kind of the inquisitive question, which is, what's better? What's the definition of better in home security? And we have found that we are a great answer to that question. You guys should advertise on Reddit. They've got a home security category. It's pretty cool. They do. We've started digging it. And Reddit's probably the most inquisitive section, right? If you look at Reddit, they ask questions like, why does the Ring Doorbell Pro have these security holes? Why does the battery suck on it? Why does Vivint do this contract? And they tear everything apart. And they tend to have very intense conversations on Reddit. Yeah, I think there's definitely something there. I just searched alternative ADT in Google just to see what came up. Because I did look at Ring, but there's no one watching Ring. I looked at Simply Safe, same thing. And then I don't want like a long-term old school contract where they don't actually monitor it all the time. And when they do, they call like their own security people. One thing I'll tell you that I looked for, and I honestly couldn't find really anything online, was home security audits. What I started looking for is like, what do you do to protect your house? Like, I just need checklists. Yeah, like what is the list of things to look through? So I made up my own. Dude, I love that. Yeah, so go ahead, go ahead. No, no, I made up my own. That's what I called Operation Dragon Flame. Because I was trying to basically go from what is the outside of my house preventative towards the inside and what are the products that I need. So maybe I'll put out a video and, and put Deep Sentinel in it. And I can just recommend all the different things that from all the research, I was just shocked that there wasn't a dedicated place to be like, hey, if you have a home, here's the exact things you need to do to keep your house safe. So it's a new thing, actually, this idea of like thinking about security holistically. My buddy who's a cop texted me the other day and he said, have you ever heard of CPTED? And I was like, No. Obviously, you haven't either. I'm looking it up. CPTED. Oh, this is interesting. 
crime protection through environmental design. And it's a more holistic view of securing your home. And he said, look, Deep Sentinel is obviously the absolute most powerful thing that you can have at actually preventing active crime. But there's other stuff you can do. You guys should start educating customers about what a holistic view is of what are all the things I can do to secure my home. And that's everything from like the windows that you're talking about to don't put stones. A lot of people put a fountain with like large stones right in front of their front window. That's a jackhammer and a nail, right? Like you put the two together, right? Like, you know, and he goes to all these homes and there's all these like wealthy homes and they have a fountain and one of the big rocks from their fountain is in their front living room, right? Like, there you go. Just don't invite people to do this stuff. You know, it's like door locks. You can put poo-poo on door locks or otherwise, but like every form of security is effectively a small barrier that adds up to time and adds up to defense. Cops actually do training on CPTED because a lot of cops are focused on something called crime prevention. There's crime prevention units in a lot of municipal police departments, and their job is to kind of help educate consumers about what are all the different things that they could do. I never heard of that. That's so cool. Just about how you design your actual house. Don't put a front door that has ivy so that no one can see into your front door. That's one thing I've still wondered is that if someone comes to your door that's UPS or it's like, hey, we're delivering a package. Like, how do you, like, if my fiance's home alone, does she just never open the door? Yeah. Rule number one to this is always answer the door. 100% of the time, answer the door. Never do not answer your door. In fact, one of the key services that Deep Sentinel provides is that if somebody is loitering on your front porch for one minute, we will always answer your door. Why? Well, let's actually analyze what's the anatomy of a crime. Let's start with a burglary or a home invasion. A burglary or a home invasion starts usually two to five days ahead of time. If they're going to scope the property out, they're going to scope it out. They're going to park in front of your house or down the street from your house for two to three hours, and they're going to check out the house. Or they were a service provider and they've already been to your house. They already know about it. That's step one is they scope out the house. Step two, when they come to the house, the average burglary or home invasion includes between three and 25 minutes outside of your home. Up to 25 minutes, these people are sitting outside your home, which is why you have all these like, oh, I caught these guys. That's a-. You didn't catch them. They're just You just have a 25-minute long video of assholes sitting outside your home before they broke into it, idiot. They still broke into your home. You didn't catch shit. It's mind-boggling to me, these headlines. Like assault caught on home video camera. They weren't caught. You idiot, like this guy has a mask on. He beat the shit out of you outside of your home and you have a video you can show to the local news station. Congratulations, I'll send you a t-shirt, right? Like, what do you want? Right? Like, that's not caught. You still got your ass kicked, right? And so these people are spending minutes. There was a home invasion in my hometown in Pleasanton that happened three months ago. It, was one of the, it made national news. These guys beat the door down and the mom was home. They spent four minutes knocking on the door before they beat the door down. Why? Because they want to know if you're home. They're not coming to do a home invasion to go get you. They're trying to find homes that are not occupied. They'll knock on the door. They'll ring the doorbell. When you have an electronic doorbell, a ring or a nest or whatever, they will ring that almost every time because they want to know if you're home. The neat thing about these doorbells that a lot of people don't know for criminals is that criminals ring them two to three times to figure out, are you not home and not paying attention? It's a two-way communication device. If you don't answer your doorbell, You've just told criminals two pieces of information. You are not home and your home is theirs for the taking. And so answering your door is the single most important thing you can always start with. And that's what Deep Sentinel does. We always answer the door. One of the things that we do, you ask the question about like, are we just kind of this passive thing? When you install Deep Sentinel, you have your housekeeper come and they sit on your doorstep for one minute. Your buddy comes to visit. We always answer the door. 
someone is always watching and you create this aura of this home is alive. This home is being watched. This home is protected. This is the wrong home to make your mark. And in almost all of these cases of burglary or home invasion, if we intervene, that guy that you mentioned, the guy that had the gun, all it took was in that minute while he was kind of walking around the outside before he got inside the home, was intervening and saying hello to him and asking him to leave and he was gone. Every single one of these serious crimes almost always starts with five minutes or more outside of the home. I think one of the interesting things that we've already talked about, but I'm still, I was kind of like just noodling on is that it, it reminds me of almost like insurance or like life yeah. insurance per se, or something that's, you know, potentially helpful, but you're like, ah, you know, I don't need it. And that's the old category. That's the, that is our biggest problem. Ring is probably got the most beneficial because of Amazon, not because they got bought, but because of all the packages delivered, got stolen, yeah. someone wanted protection. And then that kind of pushed a lot of the people to, and I don't know about you, but with my ring, it always gets the face w really late. It's a wonderful idea that doesn't solve the problem. It's another layer of deterrence. Where I knew that kind of Ring had reached the point where its efficacy as a product, it's great. Like, by the way, I mean, like Amazon buying them, I think is genius. As an insurance policy, it is a phenomenal insurance policy for Amazon. I think it's one of the smartest things they've done because they don't have to prevent any one crime, right? For that to make sense for Amazon, all they have to do is reduce the incidence of package theft by 10%. And it's a phenomenal acquisition for Amazon, right? Like it's profitable, it makes customers feel better, and it just has a deterrence layer that it works 10% of the time. That's all it has to do, then it works. For us, that's not our job. Our job is protecting your home. And every single one of those is an affront on us. It's a different thing. It's not an insurance policy across a huge business. It is a solving a problem for an individual consumer. Every single time someone comes to your house, I want to be able to make sure that it's safe. Have you considered giving away the video camera for free? We have. I'm going to promote it. I didn't do this at all. I did this because I was really excited. But I was like, man, if I'm going to pay 50 bucks, just give it to me for free. And then theoretically, as long as the house is there, I'm going to keep subscribing. I've totally thought about it. The challenge that we have actually is that as soon as you make something free, you start attracting people that can't afford it. You end up having a selection bias where you end up bringing in a bunch of customers that are low quality customers to start out with. It's like the opposite of Peloton's problem, right? Peloton's an interesting business because what they did is they built a product that only rich people can afford. So therefore their churn is very low because they don't even notice that they're paying 30 or 40 bucks a month for it. Because you think it would attract people just to get the free camera and then they would just stop subscribing and keep the camera maybe? Not even maybe, like absolutely. Where does Deep Sentinel evolve to in the future? I think from a, a business perspective, we have found a problem that when we solve it, our customers love it. So I'm not going to go and branch out and do 40 other things. Our business is making sure that our customers feel safe at their home. There are other things that we're going to do to help kind of broaden that. So we'll, we'll do that through partnerships and integrations and adding to our product line. We're looking at new types of sensors that we could add to the business. We're looking at new artificial intelligence that we can add. We're looking at new services we can add on top of our existing business, just using the existing hardware and software stack that we have. We're constantly improving the AI. What I would expect from us over the next year is, number one, as we launch our small business offering, that we're going to be launching a new set of services that cater to small businesses. We're going to focus on improving our AI to make our response times even faster. So we're going to really continue focusing and honing in on what we already do. And then I would expect us to launch a new set of interesting hardware over the course of the next year. Well, dude, you kind of made me have a little bit of regret, not going to lie, that I just bought it and you said a new one's coming out in six months. Look. These are awesome. There's always going to be a new one coming out in six months. Welcome to the world of, of hardware, right? But uh, we'll be adding new stuff to the existing one as well. So we'll be broadening the platform. So add, like I said, adding new sensors that you can then add on to your existing Deep Sentinel system. For every person you hire that's security, how many houses are, can they monitor? 
so again, if you think about it in the context of every home needs about 700 seconds of security. So that means that we can protect about 1,500 homes with that regard. Oh, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, because basically it can scale to handle multiple homes. I like what you said, because I think this is a business problem that a lot of people think about, not not the home security, but the like, have I saturated the market of my current product offering? Or do I start kind of going sideways around other things? I think that's a question all of us kind of consider. I mean, as much as possible, you want to find a business where you can saturate, right? And you don't have to broaden because every time you broaden, you're taking effectively new product risk, right? And certainly it's an adjacent product risk, probably. So it's less, you know, if you look at like a VC business model, Businesses that have to go into adjacencies have a much higher risk profile for investors than businesses that can just do one thing and do it incredibly, incredibly well. I guess, why do you guys need to raise money if it's, you know, you got this recurring revenue, you're selling products? In order to expand the market, right? So we're still losing money on kind of core operations and hardware operations. We lose money with every customer we acquire. And so it takes us time. We're kind of going through that growth curve where we have to invest money into that trough of growth. What are your thoughts on decreasing the marketing spend or getting the customer acquisition significantly lower? So we're at a stage where we're actually increasing our, our customer marketing, but we're driving down the cost of customer acquisition right now. So we, we, over the course of the last, I would say, eight months have gone down 10% month over month on customer acquisition costs. Just to give you guys some feedback, like I searched Deep Sentinel on Reddit. You guys aren't even really mentioned here. Yeah, we need to lay into marketing, organic marketing. We spend a lot of time improving the product and getting it ready. And this quarter and this year are all about like heavy duty going to market. Yeah, like I looked on the home security subreddit, which is the biggest one. You guys aren't mentioned like at all. I feel like the prepper community, you know, it's a lot of influencers and organic and things like that. But I think that's kind of the challenge in every business is, you know, Thomas who's running is great on your marketing side. It's like, there's so much to do, you know, and I think ads has worked for you guys on Facebook and YouTube. So it's like, well, let's do the ones that work before we start adding in kind of the Bezos thing. Like what's the experiments that are going to fail that we can try? What you're mentioning right now is exactly what we're doing right now. So we're adding in a bunch of experiments that can fail. We've already failed at a bunch of them. And we're in the process of both optimizing the ones that are working and then trying a bunch of new stuff that we haven't tried before. I mean, how do you think Ring and Arlo kind of got their exposure? So Arlo was retail deals. It was a spin out of Netgear. So they used all the Netgear supply chain and selling motion there. So that one was pretty clear in terms of how they did it. Ring did a much better job. Ring just was doing what we're doing, just trying a bunch of stuff, right? Whether that was QVC or going on Shark Tank or door-to-door selling and neighborhood marketing and marketing to police departments, it was a multifaceted sale. And so that's what we're engaged in is finding what are all the different pieces of that that work? Is it PR? Is it QVC and HSN? Is it uh, viral videos like Shark Tank and things like that? Like what are all the different pieces that are required to drive that really effective top of funnel to drive the next couple pieces? Do you guys secure a lot of the VCs or a lot of the billionaires in the Bay Area? We do have a lot of customers that are venture capitalists. I'm trying to think, is there an angle around like, hey, we secure the wealthiest people in the world? We haven't tried that one. That's got to have appeal though, for sure. The other thing I thought was actually interesting is that most tech companies, software companies, tech, I don't know how you guys position yourselves or think of yourselves, don't have a sales phone sales team that you guys do. Your site and your email marketing, it's like, hey, call us. And I think it's a pretty high percentage of your sales, which is what Thomas is lightly mentioning. How did you guys even consider that? Like AppSumo, you can't call us to buy something or Sumo or SendFox, any of our products. It was one of the things we tested. We hired one salesperson saw that, oh my gosh, people do like calling for this product. We looked at our competitors and they were, you know, ADT has almost all their landing pages are call us, call us, call us. And so we tested it out. It uh, drove our conversion up by like a factor of two. And so we continued investing in it. And now we're in the process of scaling that out. And we now think of our funnel as being top of funnel, right? Just kind of hook. Then we have curiosity and then we have education and then we have closing. And sales is 45 to 55% of that closing chunk of our funnel. 
Helen, can you repeat the funnel? That was interesting. So the hook is the top of funnel. Just get you interested. Make sure that you're in category or interested. Curious. Go to that second stage of the funnel and watch our videos. Once you do that and you watch one or two videos, you just get sucked in. Almost everyone that watches two of our videos, like the how it works, what it does, what the value is, gets sucked into, I have decided to buy Deep Sentinel. We did all these surveys of people that were kind of down here. And a lot of them just said, look, I'm not going to replace my current thing because I'm in contract until November. I'm going to buy your system in September. I already have it on my calendar. As soon as they've kind of gotten through this phase, we may not convert them right away. We have dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of people that have already decided to buy the system. They know when they're going to do it. They have like some life event or something happening and they're going to buy it then. And that's kind of an interesting thing that we've learned. So it's, again, hook, curiosity, education, and conversion. Have you worked with a lot of realtors? We haven't. We do have like probably three or four that buy it as gifts for their customers. Because if you think about it, all the condo and apartment people, really, they kind of need it, but not really. It's really for like homes or maybe offices to the adjacency who's closing houses that yep. you can just get them as your, your drug dealer. Yeah. So we're starting to talk to different real estate groups in areas where we have penetration. The thing is, real estate is a massively disparate market. And so educating people for that is pretty hard. You know, it does give me the idea of like, maybe we just advertise on Zillow, right? Like people Ooh, that are in- How about Redfin? Like Dude, Red, come on now. How are you not going to talk about Redfin? Yeah, you know, we could do a partnership with Redfin. There's a little bit of uh, incestuous nature to that. But yeah, like, I mean, I, th I think there's a lot of different adjacencies that we're still digging into. As good a job as Tomas has done is kind of getting us to where we're at right now, we're behind in kind of our go-to-market initiatives. And so we're really focused on kind of making all that stuff happen this year. Have you watched the burglar videos on YouTube, by the way? Lots of them. It's shocking. They're like, hey, here's exactly how we think about this stuff. Yeah. And they're like, it's dogs don't discourage us. These things don't discourage us. You know what they say consistently? A camera with a flashing red light and someone yelling at me. Really? Every time. Lights as well. Lights are a pretty good, like floodlights and motion lights. But yeah, I mean, like it's mind blowing, right? I mean, everything that you think that actually does it. In fact, if you look at the long-term trend of security, like let's look like over hundreds of years, not just like this technological trend. Over hundreds of years, security has these technical innovations, you know, a wall, a door, a lock, you know, the tumbler lock, right? Every single time, technology innovations by themselves have this little bump and then they go back to the normal, right? The only thing that consistently stops crime over the multi-hundred-year period is people telling you to stop. And if you think about like lights, floodlights effectively are that same thing. Floodlights are a threat that someone could see you and then tell you to stop. They're the other one that's had like a longer term kind of impact. But over time, everything gets normalized. What's one of the top things people are stealing last Christmas? Video doorbells. Not only is it not effective at protecting your packages, they're stealing them. In fact, there's a website. If you search for what do I do if someone stole my ring? They now have a policy that they'll replace it for you because it's happening so frequently. I thought they replace it for free. Yeah, they do but they have to have a policy for it because it's happening so frequently. So here's something interesting. I messaged it, my business partner got a house and I sent him Deep Sentinel earlier and I was like, hey, what do you think of this? He said, it's a neat idea, but I wouldn't use it myself because it's kind of creepy knowing they're watching my cameras. We definitely have some people that have privacy concerns. We tackle that in three different ways. First and foremost is we have a privacy mode. If you have something that you want, don't want us to see, you log into the app, it's in the lower left-hand corner, you punch privacy, you turn off all your cameras, no guards are watching anything. Bam, done. Number two, our cameras are outdoor. In fact, if you install your cameras inside of your house, we'll turn them off, we'll disable them. You'll get a note from customer care and they'll say, look, we just don't protect the interior of people's homes right now. It's not part of something that we do. We've not trained our guards to deal with that. 
We don't want to see you and your family walking around in your underwear. That's not what we're here to do. We're here to be a security company. We do that. We do that incredibly well. And that's all we do. And then third is that we have a a whole bunch of stringent policies around the privacy that we have there, right? Like in terms of access to the guard room, the guard room secure. We do background checks on all the guards. We make sure that we're watching what they do. The guards don't have access to go back and watch your feeds if they want to. Like we have all these kind of controls to make sure that what we do is what we do. And that's all that we do. If everyone in the audience can help you with something, and I, I got to get rocking, what can everyone do? But did you buy Deep Sentinel and use it? I would ask them to do the one thing. It's that middle of the funnel. I'm not encouraging you to buy it if you don't want to buy it, right? Like, that's not what I'm going to say. Watch two of our videos. Watch two of our videos and then try not to buy it. Because once you watch two of the videos and you realize what this thing does, I have not found someone that's like, oh, yeah, oh, that I don't want that. It's the same experience you've had. Try to watch two of our videos about how this thing works and what it does and try not to buy it then because it's affordable and it's just truly life-changing. Dude, I love it. I'm looking forward to it. I'm installing it this weekend and I think you put your ho- your hands above your head to say hello. Yep. This is damn cool. All right, man. Well, I'm, I'm rooting for you guys. Thank you much. Thanks for taking the time today and, and please tell, share all your feedback with me once you get it installed. On average, what we get is we get an email that says, I had very high expectations and this product exceeded my expectations. And that is, I'm going to set the bar pretty darn high with that one, but I'll do it. Sally, you're the man. I'm rooting for you guys. I'll follow up with you this weekend or early next week with uh, my experience. I would love it, man. And like I said, I'll set the bar high. You're going to think it's amazing. And you're going to hopefully call me and tell me it's even better. That's a wrap. I hope you love the episode as much as I did. If you did, go check out deepsentinel.com and just watch two of their videos. This stuff is insane about what it does. Also code OKDORK if you want to hook up from them. I did buy it myself and there's no affiliate kickback for me promoting them. I just like the product. Next, text a friend you love them. Yo, dog, let's go camping together. And before you go, let me know what you thought of the episode by emailing podcast at Oak Who cares? Because I'm not going to read that email anyways. And a final special thanks to Jason at podcasttech.com for always making the podcast sound so dope. And thank you to Mitchell and David of the Dork Team. And a special shout out this week to Fernandez at Sumo this week. Just wanted to let you know that you're super cool. Also, dude, it's been a, it's been a fun ride, man. You're the best. Have a stupendous day. What's your favorite stretch?